How many folks are new to the center here? Okay, good. How many folks are new to insight meditation? Just, okay. All right, great. So I'll do my best to offer something that can be helpful for a wide range of folks. Um, it said I'm doing a Dharma discussion, and I will, but I'm going to give a, uh, a talk first. Is that all right, or you just want to chat? Okay. <laughs> um, so I'm going to be, uh, I'm going to start with a story, which is uh, inspired by a, a short story that was written by Tolstoy, um, and it's called uh, Three Questions. How many folks are familiar with it? Anybody? Okay, great. So I'll, I'll uh, just recite the, my version of the story, and then I'll, I'll work through it. In a way, I'll work through it from the point of view of insight meditation and a, a practitioner of Dharma, what we're doing here. Okay? And hopefully it can help us a bit with our formal practice in our daily lives. Um, so there was a king once <coughs> who had these three burning questions, and he thought that if he could get the answers to them, that it would help him in every situation to be the most skillful way he could be for himself and to, to run his, uh, his kingdom. And so he offered a great prize. Anyone who could answer these questions in a way this was satisfactory would get the prize. So the three questions were, what is the most important time to start something, to undertake something. And for our purposes, what is the most important time? Who are the most important people to employ? Or who is the most important person or being from our point of view? And the third one is what is the most important thing to remember at all times? Or what is the most important thing? So all these people came and gave him all these answers, and <coughs> he was not satisfied with any of them. So nobody got the prize. And in the classical story, there's a long description of these different <coughs> theories that he got, but I'm leaving them out, and that's for a reason. Um, so he heard that there was this, this very wise hermit that lived maybe half a day's walk away, um, but that he only saw common people. He wouldn't see anybody of nobility. So the king decided that he would go and visit him, and he dressed up as a commoner, and he had a couple of attendants that followed way far behind him, back in the woods. And so when he reached the hermit, he was digging out in front of his hut in a garden. At a trowel, he was on his knees, and he was digging rows. So the king came up to him and respectfully came up to him and said, I'd like to ask you a few questions. The, the wise hermit paused and looked at him. And so he asked his three questions. What is the most important time? Who is the most important person? And what is the most important thing? Well, the wise hermit just looked at him, smiled, and went back to digging his rows. So as the king waited there, he began to notice that each time that the hermit dug some soil, he sighed heavily. He was old, and it was hot, and it was 
difficult for him to do the work. So after some time, he asked the hermit if he could do some of the digging. And the hermit said yes. Gave him the trowel, and the king started digging. Well, after some time, the king paused, looked at the hermit, and said, uh, will you answer my questions now? And the hermit said, oh, let me do some digging. Uh, the king didn't. He, the king just started digging again. He dug for one hour, for two hours. A lot of rows were getting dug. And the sun was setting behind the mountain nearby. And it was about to set, and the king noticed this, and he paused, and he said one more time, he said, I'd like to ask my questions, but if you can't answer them, then I'll take my leave. I should be getting back. And the hermit didn't say anything, and he said, oh, wait, I hear some noise. And they looked up, and there was a, a man staggering, sort of staggering towards them, coming out of the woods. He was holding his side. He staggered up to them, and he collapsed right at the feet of the king. And the king noticed that he was holding his side, and there was little blood trickling out from underneath his hands. So he removed, the, he removed his hands, and he noticed he was cut. So he removed the shirt. He went and got some water and uh, came back, and with part of the water, he started cleaning, cleaning the cut, cleaning it out. And when he was done cleaning it, he took his own shirt, and he wrapped the wound, made it press so it would stop bleeding. The man, who was just barely conscious, looked up and said, water. And the king offered him some water. And then he passed out. The king and the hermit took the wounded man to the hermit's hut and lay him down, and he went right to sleep. The king was exhausted at this point. It been a pretty long, eventful day. So he leaned up against the, the pole, and he fell asleep as well. In the morning, when he woke, uh, the hermit wasn't there, and the, the wounded man was, was awake, and he was looking at him. And he said to the king, he said, I have a confession to make. I came here to do you harm. You see, in the last war, you killed my brother, and you took our family lands, and I came to avenge this. So when I heard that you were coming dressed as a commoner, I decided that I would... I would wait for you in the woods and try to uh, attack you when you were going back. But seeing as you didn't come all day, you didn't come back all afternoon, I decided to come out of the woods and look for you. One of your attendants saw me, recognized who I was, and gave me this wound. And he said, but I was wrong. Uh, uh, please forgive me. I've seen what you've done. You saved my life. So if you spare my life, then I will promise to, and he said this with affection in his voice, I will promise to be uh, loyal to you for the rest of my life. Now the king was very moved by this. He thought, wow, I just did this simple act and I, I turned someone who was an enemy into someone who has affection for me. And so he said, uh, not only will I not harm you, I will not kill you, um, I will give you back your lands. And then he had one of his attendants come, and he took the wounded man to be 
uh, taken care of by his own personal physician until he got better. So the, the king saw that the hermit was out in the garden planting seeds where he had been digging rows the day before, and he went out to ask him one more time his question. And so he asked him, what is the most important time? Who is the most important person? And what is the most important thing? And the king stopped his digging and actually got up and held his shoulder and looked at him affectionately and said, you already have the answers. He said, with regard to me, yesterday, the most important time was when you were digging. The most important person was me. And the most important thing was kindness. You saw that I was frail and you helped me out. If you hadn't have done these things and you had just left when you weren't getting your answer, then you would have surely regretted it because someone was waiting for you to do you harm. With regard to the wounded man, the most important time was when you were bandaging his wound. He was the most important person. And again, the most important thing was kindness for you saved his life. And if you had not done this, then you would have lost an opportunity to transform an adversarial relationship into an affectionate one. So the most important time is now. The most important person is the one you are with. And the most important thing is kindness. So this is a very beautiful Dharma story in itself, isn't it? It's complete. It's simple. But now I want to I want to look at it from the point of view of the of the path. And just weave sort of the story and then how we work and maybe give some inspiration about how we work in our formal practice in our daily lives from this story. So <clears throat> a quote from the story actually uh, will deal with each one. What is the most important time? Starting with that. And Tolstoy said, now is the most important time because it is the only time we have any power. It's interesting. So he, he, he means a certain kind of power. Did any of you remember the comic strip Hager? Yeah? Okay, good. Well, there's one, okay, well, there, there's, one, there's one in that uh, of, of uh, Hager is asked if he would rather uh, have money, power, or happiness. And he said, I'll take the money, because then I'll have power, and then I'll be happy. <laughs> so this is the kind of power that comes from having power over, right? To manipulate, to control. This is not the kind of power that Tolstoy is pointing at, or our practice points at. It's the power to be in the now to be so deeply in our relationship, uh, in, in the moment that we change our relationship to it. So that we're actually with things exactly as they are and we can, we can uh, see clearly and move from that clear seeing. So this is a quote from the Bade Karata Sutta. 
So this is, we're moving to training the heart. He says, you shouldn't chase after the past or place expectations on the future. What is past is left behind. The future is as yet unreached. Whatever quality is present, you clearly see right there, right there. Not taken in, unshaken. That's how you develop the heart. And later on, he says, whoever lives thus ardently, both day and night, truly has had an auspicious day. So we look into experience in the present moment as it is. And from this, we develop the heart. And this is the power that we have in practice. It's not the power over. Life throws us curveballs. Life is, it's not sure, is it? It's not sure. We don't know. We think we know. We do the best we can to take care and to control things as best we can, but we can't tell. We don't know in terms of our relationships, our, our investments, our bodies seem to change over time, you noticed, right? So we can't be sure. So the power that we have is in the heart. It's in the mind. And so Bade Karata, the sutta is saying, learn to be with things deeply as they are. So not chasing after the past, right? Not dwelling in the past or chasing after the future. That doesn't mean we don't plan. It doesn't mean we don't deal with the past or the future in the present. Just those things we deal with. But it's we don't chase after. We don't dwell in. That's not developing the heart. The heart gets developed. We get strength in the heart when we learn to be with the quality, the quality of things as they are in the present moment. And we'll explore this um, step by step on the path as we go through this. But it's beautiful because it says we're not taken in, we're not shaken when we're deeply in the present moment, when we're deeply in the now. Not shaken, think about that, the power of being present. We're not pushed around, right? Now often when we think of power, we're imposing our will over. Yeah? We're imposing our idea on things. That conventional kind of power. This is from uh, Basho. It's actually one of my favorite quotes in terms of a strategy of living in practice and in life in general. Uh, you know who Basho was? Japanese, great Japanese uh, poet. He was the last century. If we want to learn, and this is uh, part of a poem on uh, looking at a pine tree. We must leave our preoccupation with ourselves. Otherwise, we impose ourselves on the object and do not learn. So if we impose our minds and our hearts onto, if we impose an image of what, it sh of what life, sort of the way we want it to be and should be, then we're looking through our conditioned lenses of past, future, our wounding, our expectations. We often live through what the, the Buddha called these factors of the mind that is wanting, that is wanting to get rid of, and it doesn't see clear. We're seeing through these conditioned lenses. We think that the problem in life is out there. The problems in life are out there. 
we don't understand, we don't really realize that, it's our, that our relationship to experience through working with what's in our hearts and minds, that's where we can find a kind of unshakable power. So, um, this is from Emerson. I've actually been kind of into reading Emerson, one of our New Englanders, native New Englanders, on the transcendentalists. He says, people not seem to realize that their opinion of the world is also a confession of character. People do not seem to realize that their opinion of the world is also a confession of character. So when we, are impose, on, when we impose on the world our opinions, our judgments, we think it's out there. But we're, not say, we're actually not understanding that much of how we perceive the world is a projection of what's in our own hearts and minds. So I don't mean, it's, it's, when I look at that for myself, it's usually kind of bad news. Because all the complaining we do, right? That's actually saying, oh, okay. It's, it's actually, a lot of it's from here. And often when people, people will bring up um, abstract questions in practice around, uh, they're real, real problems in the world, real injustices. And then the, if we're real Dharma practitioners, if we take, if we really want to cultivate this inner, this inner strength, then we have to ask ourselves, have I, have I uprooted that from my own heart? It's not that it doesn't exist, not that problems don't exist, but have I worked on that myself? So that we actually start to take inside and say, oh, this is where my power is. So Emerson's saying it's a, it's a reflection of character. And really when we do this inner work, our, our joy is, gets much more aligned with how we're developing our heart, our mind, the, char the inner character of ourselves and how we, how we live internally and how we respond versus how the world cooperates to our image of how it's supposed to be. So the Buddha taught uh, suffering and the end of suffering. Very simple teaching. Okay? Or actually a more accurate way of putting it is that he taught um, he taught suffering that's Option. He taught suffering, and then he said there's optional suffering. Okay, and what we can do, and suffering doesn't mean when we stub our toe, it doesn't hurt. It doesn't mean that if we have loss, we don't feel. It doesn't mean that we're not human at all. But what do our minds do with what happens in life? That's called optional suffering. How we, re we go over again and again and again. And how we externalize, or we internalize, or we blame ourselves. Right? And we go around and around and around. And we don't seem to have tools, to, even if we want to, even if we're, you know, genuinely want to learn. Say, no, I'd like to own, I'd like to own my own experience. I'd like to go inside and find, develop my character of heart and mind. It's very difficult to do so, isn't it? How many people had a bad hair day today, so to speak? <laughs> I had like a bad hair weekend. I was, I was teaching a... Well, sorry, not really. <laughs> but I was teaching a retreat in, um, in Philadelphia this weekend, and um, residential retreat, about 40 folks. It was, it was a lovely retreat. Um, but uh, I got bitten by some bugs around the time I was there that were really itchy, so that wasn't good. Uh, and then on the way back, uh, it's happened twice in my, my wallet. Uh, I don't know what happened. 
found there when I got in the plane. It wasn't when I was on the bus coming back. I don't know. So I cancel all my cards and license. You know, it's happened a couple of times in my life. How many, have anyone, has anybody never lost a license in their whole life or anything? Who, has, who is pure and clean and free? <laughs> wow, you don't have DAD, do you? You're very good, people. Okay, good. You've never lost a license or, or a wallet? Good for you. You're right, I hadn't lost my first one by the time I was your age, probably. Okay, 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 you got me. <laughs> um, so I came back, and then there were some other, some other interpersonal stuff, with, you know, organizations I'm involved with in the Dharma that were just a little, threw me for a little loop. And, uh, and, my, and my wife was like, I was like, wow, I told her all these stories, I got back, and you know, the retreat was a great time, but all the rest of it, all these, I couldn't control these things. And I said, God, that really threw me for a loop. She said, oh, no, you did pretty well. Like, you weren't, you weren't that upset. And it was like, can you have a bad hair day? And I, it, I still am dealing with it, though, right? <laughs> can you have a bad hair day and not have a bad hair day at the same time? So that's what the question is. Can we go through life and get, we get pushed around. We get beaten up, right? Sometimes things happen. But can our hearts and our minds um, learn to have a quality that's more, more like, as the sutta said, unshakable? Right? It doesn't get pushed around so much. And it's interesting when we look at practice because the word equanimity, which we often associate with mindfulness, right? When we're mindful, we're more equanimous. It has kind of two meanings. One is to stand outside of, so we see, like we can see things arising without getting caught in them. But it also means to stand in the midst of, right? In the midst of our life. So we're actually right in it. It's not like this detached feeling. So I think that the quality of unshakableness, right? The power of being really present, it has that quality of both being able to observe and stand right in the midst of our full humanness. So how do we train the heart and mind? Well, classically, we, in our practice, and we bring it in different ways into daily life, we practice shamatha vipassana, or are people familiar with that term? No? Okay. It means learning to calm and steady the heart and the mind through being present in a repeated way. And it means uh, using that strength to see into life in a way that we see its changing nature. We see its uncontrollability in certain ways. We see, it, we see into the nature of, of both the experiences we have and then into this nature of buoyancy, this inherent nature, this quality of the mind and the heart that can be with experience much more fully and still be really in it but not pushed around by it. So there's calming and steadying, and then there's seeing into. So um, this is a beautiful, uh, uh, one of my favorite quotes about natural, a kind of natural calm that points to this, this quality of, of settling the mind. And it's from Wendell Berry. When despair for the world grows in me, and I wake in the night at the least sound of in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be. I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water and the great heron feeds. I come into the place of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water and I feel above me the day blind stars waiting for their light, waiting with their light. 
For a time I rest in the grace of the world and am free. So it's saying when, when life is rough, okay, when despair grows in me, then I turn, he turns to that which is natural, right? Into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. For a time I rest in the grace of the world and am free. So this is a kind of naturally bringing our awareness fully into the senses. Now he's in nature, right? <laughs> and I, uh, if you live in nature, then you have more access, in a way, to this outer field, which might be more. And actually, if you look at nature, it has, there's a lot of life and death going on, right? So it's, <laughs> it's not just a pretty picture, but there's a purity in it, and it can cleanse us. So in terms of our practice, this is saying he turns, and all he was describing is being fully in his senses and allowing himself to be fully touched by his senses, right? And so in our practice, we can turn to, to coming to our senses. John Kabat-Zinn and Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction is a book called Coming to Our Senses. It means to come and stay the mind and the heart, you just turn. Or you allow ourselves, we allow ourselves to be touched by the vividness of our senses. And it takes us out of our head, our grief. It takes us out of our preoccupations. And it lands us in the power of the present moment. And when we practice this concentration or settling meditation, we just choose objects to do that with. And mindfulness means to do that in a way where we're not judging, we're not pushing or pulling, we're just being with things, right? Like in the Bade Karata Sutta, the quality of things just as they are. So right now, can you feel the air? There's a quality, right, in the air. Without, oh, it's too hot, it's too cold. No, there's a quality. You can feel yourself sitting right now. If I if you put your attention there. There's just a quality to that. Seeing. There's just a quality to seeing. It's just, it is as it is. And the breath and the body are wonderful, wonderful. They're called anchors, where we can come back and return to as a training to help calm and steady the heart and the mind. And so in a certain way, that's really the foundation of our practice, to do that again and again and again. And we have to remember so mindfulness is present moment awareness, but it's also remembering to come back. So we, have to, we get caught up, right? We're here and then we're, we're gone. We're caught up in the past, the future, right? Some analysis and then we wake up. Life can break through. One of the most beautiful that I love about this poem is this thing, life breaks through the heart's preoccupations if we just allow it to. So there's that and then there's the training. Okay. How many folks practice breath awareness? Just like have a practice. Do you get a sense of what I'm talking of? When, when you touch your breath, whether it's in formal practice or even in daily life, you step out of the rat race for a moment, don't you? Whether it's for half a breath or two breaths or, or when you feel a footstep or feel a breeze, you're out of it. You're, I mean, you're in it. <laughs> but you're out of that loop. And it's so simple. This quality is so simple, it's, it's almost too close to us. We're much too smart for it. <laughs> it's really just simple present moment awareness and we can train in it. So um, this we deepen over time. 
with our calming practice. And it's necessary. So the philosopher Wittgenstein said, the greatest achievement would be for me to be able to stop doing philosophy when I want to. Right? <laughs> yeah, we get, into, we get into a groove, but then we just can't. Okay, that's enough. I planned that already. I know what I'm going to do. Okay, no, planning mind doesn't care. Just keeps going. Right? So we train, we train, we get skilled, we create new habit energies by unlearning the compulsiveness of old ones. And then in moments, and he actually, Wittgenstein said it would be the greatest achievement. That would be huge. <laughs> right? So it's so simple. But it's quite an achievement when we can do thinking when we need to and then, okay, I can be present again. So when the mind is calmed and steadied, then we see into experience. We see into its changing nature. That's what Vipassana is. We can see things arise. So it's not just we block things out, right? We get a temporary place of rest. But we open into the fullness of life. It can be all the senses in their richness. But it can also be our inner experience of resistance or you know, the energy of sadness or joy or anger. We can start to actually, with, when the mind is strengthened by having more like character of being present, then it can start to see into these things. And guess what? None of them last. They're always changing and morphing. And if we slip out from underneath the mental overlays on them, they become energies. They become observable. And when they're observable, they become more workable. And then, have you ever tried to hold on to a thought forever? Like that was tormenting you? I have as an experiment. Like I've had a thought that keeps repeating. I'm like, okay, come on, bring it on. I'm ready for you. I'm going to hold on to you. You're not going to get away because you really want to occupy my mind, so go ahead. Gone. <laughs> Shameless, aren't they? So they actually, they're actually saying, I am impermanent. Right? They're trying to tell us that. But we don't listen. Because as, as I mentioned in the Basho poem, we're, self -preoccup we're preoccupied, right? And we have to learn to leave that aside. And that is the freshness of being present. It's the freshness of being present and then seeing into whatever arises. So that's our insight practice. And when we do this again and again, something very simple happens. Something very beautiful and simple happens. The separations between us and life dissolve. A lot of our suffering comes from separation. It comes from the, the separation that we have with our experience through all the overlays. When we learn to calm and steady and see into them, we allow, it's like the heart empties itself. It's like water in the heart and the mind is frozen in these forms. And when we shine the light of awareness, sustained present moment awareness again and again and again, what happens to that ice? It melts. So there's nothing wrong. There's actually nothing wrong with our there's nothing wrong with our thoughts. There's, they're, they're just energies, but they get locked because we lock them in with our habit energy. And so when we see them again and again, there's a natural melting quality. And then that energy is in the service of life. It's, it turns into energy where we can be much more present. Another way of looking at it is that problems in a certain way, they don't 
we don't resolve them through insight, but they dissolve. Because we just see, wow. And then that's when we talk about letting go. It's not actually, it's just a function of seeing in a sustained way and taking interest in how things are and seeing how they change. We don't let go. We see into and letting go is a natural outcome of that, right? The water, the ice melts when the conditions for it to melt are there. You don't say melt ice, you like, you give it warmth, you give it the sustained attention, right? And then when that happens, the separation between us and life is, it dissolves and we really wake up. Like that's where Wendell Berry was speaking, we really wake up to life in a very deep way. So my favorite um, teachers, I did a lot of training in Zen before I came to insight meditation, was Dogen. And his, he says basically that awakening, like real awakening is intimacy with living. Like a not, it, it's an intimacy with the moment so deeply that we disappear. Okay, so this is the deep, and there's tremendous power here. So it's not, right, so it's not the power over. It's not the power to control, it's the power of being so fully in life that nothing, it's an unshakable connection with living and there's tremendous fulfillment in that. So I'll end the little reflection on time. Um, this story about uh, a man who was <coughs> being chased by two tigers. And uh, he, you know, he was in a bad way. So he's being chased by these tigers and he, he comes up and they like pin him against the edge of this cliff and he's they're going to get him okay so he scrambles over the edge of the cliff and he's on the other side and he's about to fall it's like 40 feet or something down you know and uh, he sees this this shrub and he grabs onto it so he's holding onto it and then he looks up and there's one tiger right above and then he looks down and the other tiger has gone down waiting for him right down below so he's sitting there not, actually not sitting, he's hanging. And he's looking up and then all of a sudden he notices that it, this is very tenuous hold and that there's a little mouse gnawing away at the roots of this, the, the, the roots of this branch, that, or this, this, this little bush that he's holding onto. So what does he do? So he looks around and he notices to one side that there's a wild strawberry bush plant growing off the side of the cliff and there's a perfectly ripe strawberry. And he goes over and he picks it, and he eats it. Delicious. That's it. Get it? You don't get it? It's very deep. Okay, that's the end of now. Okay. <laughs> okay, who is the most important person? So Tolstoy's answer is the one you are with the one you are with. And he also adds, uh, he says, because you don't know if, if you'll ever, like if you'll ever be with them again. So he gives, this, he gives this impermanence. He really, this sense of not sure. Now, of course, we know we're gonna be with the people, but in a certain way, nothing's for sure. So that, that brings the energy of um, urgency into wakefulness, right? And these three are all, these, these qualities are linked together as we see. So we're bringing full care and attention to who we're with. So it's, who, it's wh whoever we're with.
So when we say who we're with, we can either say it's either another person or uh, it may be a, a lot of people or maybe different beings, right? Animals, etc. Maybe a wider field of life. Um, it also may be ourself because we spend a lot of time with ourselves, right? Alone. And actually, also when we're with other people, we're also with ourselves, right? So it's a it's it's both. So in this sense, he's saying give your full care and attention to the other, but also that's off that includes ourself. And when we're with others, includes ourselves as well. Okay. So let's look at the path. I want to look at the path and see. In the development of the path, do we, who do we pay attention to? Like, there's, do we pay attention to others first? Do we pay attention to ourselves? Prioritize? So there's different ways in, in the training of the heart and the mind that we, we work with prioritizing self and other. So if we don't have a strong heart in our, in our, and we want to like really attend to somebody else, really, you know, like Tolstoy was saying, really attend to who's there. Um, if, we're, if we try to do that and we, we're not in the right place in our hearts, what happens? We might get burned out, right? We might have like codependent relationships where they're very, very sticky. We think we're helping, but it's not really, right? It's not really for the best. It's not what we call kindness. Um, and we can, we can be unwise. Like I had a Zen master who told me I, I wanted to leave the monastery and go to Bogaya, and then I, this thing I would help people. I ended up going and working with Mother Teresa in India and all these kind of things. And he just said to me, he said, if, if you go and help others and your heart's not matured, I mean, it was in Japanese, but it's that kind of energy, um, then you're, you're actually not going to be I mean, he, was, he was harsh, because they're harsh. He said, like, you're going to go home and get tired out. You're going to get tired out and go home. It's like you won't be able to do it. You won't be able to sustain it unless you really wake up to a deeper level, level of character in your heart. Um, and he was right. It happened. I went around, I traveled around, I got really sick. And, but he didn't stop me. Went home, came back and went at it again. <laughs> um, so to start with the self is a core teaching in the Buddha's path. To take care of our own, to put our own, get our heart and our minds really developed, and then to move from that place. The Dalai Lama said, peace starts with each one of us. Peace starts with each one of us. It doesn't start out there. It starts in here. And the Dalai Lama and Thich Nhat Hanh and others, the teaching is that if you... <coughs> If you want to, and I'll even start further in, if you want to take care of your body, take care of your mind. Because the mind, the meditative path, the mind leads everything. Our intention, our, our, our heart, our mind, it leads everything. If we want to take care of our bodies, it comes from the intention of our mind, doesn't it? So, and it's important to take care of ourselves with exercise and yoga and whatever, whatever we do to take care of ourselves in that way. If you want to take care of your family, take care of your heart and your mind. This is the teaching. So put, put, get harmony there, in your own heart and mind. And then if you want there to be peace, if you want there to be peace in the community, then make sure there's peace in the family. If you want there to be peace, right, in the country, then make sure there's peace in all the communities. If you want there to be peace in the world, make sure there's peace 
in all the countries. So it, it moves from inside to out. There's this kind of relentless movement to actually work with our own hearts and minds and then move from that place throughout the teachings. It's quite beautiful and simple, but it, it takes a lot of humility and a lot of courage. It's called upstream, actually. A lot of the world is moving in a certain way. We're trying to get this and get rid of that, and it's out there, right? But upstream, the Buddha said, like, the teachings are upstream because we're saying, wait, it's not all about that. It starts in here. We don't blame it. At, we, we work in our own hearts and minds. Okay? And then when we do that, then naturally it moves outward. Naturally. And I know, I, I bet if we had time and we went around and maybe we can do it in the Q&A, um, that people would be able to talk to, speak to how their practice, their moments of mindfulness, non-reactivity, have actually supported the quality of the lives of those around them. Not in, not in a, like an egotistical way, but just a natural way. Like my wife, when things are rough, she's like, okay, go and meditate, you know? It's better for us. Or go on a retreat. No, <laughs> that could be a different motivation. <laughs> Get out of the house. <laughs> uh, but no, we take, care, we take care in here. And there's a natural ripple effect that happens. It's very interesting. So Thich Nhat Hanh, who, the Vietnamese master, Zen master, he said in, in the, in the Vietnam, Vietnamese war, many people were left there. There were, there were these boat people that were leaving Vietnam to try to escape the war. And a lot of them, they tried to make the Thailand, a lot of them were lost at sea because there were really tough conditions and a lot of, the, a lot of them panicked. A lot of the people panicked on the boats. And he said, and this, he said this was verified, that the boats where there was at least one person that was very calm had a much better chance of surviving, of making it. So that's natural ripple effect, okay? So then we think, okay, then the practice is just inward and I have to go out. Well, when I went to, I, I was ordained as a monk in Thailand and when I, when I showed up in Thailand, I was kind of amazed by the common teachings that were given. And this is a, this is a culture where insight meditation is, you know, is taught quite a bit. That it didn't start with calming and studying the mind and then seeing clearly into experience. That's not what, people were being taught. There was something called dana, sila, samadhi, panya, which means there was generosity was the first thing. And then comes ethics, like harmony, creating harmony. Then, once those are in place, they all work together, but once those are in place, then you can calm and study the mind and you can transform your relationship to experience. So we often, in the West, we often want to start just, we want the high teachings, you know? <laughs> Give me wisdom. Okay, I got to calm down a little bit first. All right. Oh, you want me to watch my, want me to watch my ethics so I don't harm people? Ah, that's, that's boring. That's just, you want me to be generous? No, 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 no. That's like, that's just conditioning, right? Well, it can be. It can be, it can be mechanical energy, right? Which might not serve. But it can also very much open the heart. When we're generous, just naturally, if we look for opportunities, then we're opening the heart. When we look to create harmony in our environments, it settles us. And when we do this, it's a lot easier. It's no guarantee, but it's a lot easier to be steady in the moment and to see clearly. Like I was in, I've been in monasteries where people that were running from the law or whatever would come in, and you should see them sit. They're like, it's like they're, they, haven't cleaned, they haven't put their house together. And so it's much harder 
to work with the inner teachings. Now it's both, right? For us, it's both. Sometimes we just need to do some meditation. And then from that place, we can get our house in order a little more. But it works back and forth. It's, a very be- it's actually kind of a beautiful interplay between taking care of self, going from the, out- the inside out, and going from the outside in. So the last one is uh, kindness. And I'd like to look at kindness. Well, Tolstoy said about kindness that the most important thing is to be kind to the one you are with because that is the purpose of living from the story. The most important thing is to be kind to the person you're with because that is the purpose of living. Now he's in good, he's in good company. The Dalai Lama says that my religion is kindness. Right? That's what he believes in. And he says that like the, the body, you don't need outer temples and all this. The body, the, heart, the, body, the heart, and the mind, that's, that's the inner temple. And you practice kindness here. There's different kinds of kindness. There's kind of a natural kindness, so like love that a mother has for a child. There's a kind of kindness that can be cultivated through loving kindness, through compassion, through practices that we do, that we intentionally do through prayer, right? We evoke energies. And then there's the kind of kindness that comes from awareness itself that is not kind of instinctual necessarily, and it's not cultivated. It comes from just being aware, presence. So I'd like to explore, um, weave these in and out as we explore once again, we'll look at kindness, but from the, the role of self, first with self and then other. So the working with ourself, the Buddha said you can search through the entire universe for someone more deserving of your love and affection than you are yourself. And that person is not to be found anywhere. That person is not to be found anywhere. You yourself, as much as anyone in the universe, deserves your love and affection. That's a hard one to take on, isn't it? We really don't think that, do we? We think we're more deserving or we're really not deserving. And we have a lot of condition, and it's, it makes sense why we do that. But from the point of view of developing the heart and the mind, there's nobody more worthy which is actually a very beautiful, it's not selfish, but it's a very, very beautiful thing to take in when we're looking for kindness. There's no more important place than right here. This is part of um, a poem by Galway Canal, St. Francis and the Sow. Says the bud stands for all things, even for those things that don't flower. For everything flowers from within of self-blessing. Though sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness, to put a hand on the brow of the flower and retell it in words and in touch it is lovely until it flowers again from within of self-blessing. 
So if we have this, if there's this innate worthiness, sometimes we have to be reminded, don't we? And it's beautiful if we have other people that show us this, right? That show us, that, that mirror back to us this inner worthiness. And we can do it for ourselves as well. We can cultivate it. We can do it by things like just appreciating what we have. To really, like changing our attitude to touch this inner worthiness, this inner love. Just, oh, kindness. Oh, this is what I have. These are the things. It's not what I don't have. Of course, my wife and I just ordered a hot tub, which I wanted for years. So I'm going to really like that. But. <laughs> you bring it to our house, okay? <laughs> ah, okay, never mind. We'll talk. <laughs> Maybe I can get my money back. <laughs> So appreciation, what we have, um, gratitude, and we can do formal metta practice. We can really, have, have, how many people here do that, have done that, have, have wished well for themselves? It can be a powerful practice, can it? It's like really, it's that self-generation. You know, may I be safe, may I be happy, may I live with ease, you know, may I have fullness, may I have peace. There are many ways of doing it. But it's like the, the heart telling itself, oh, oh. When we get so many messages throughout our lives that are not this way, it's like St. Francis of the South. We need to remind ourselves of this inner loveliness. And then our hearts flower of self-blessing. Right? It's that movement from outside to this inner. The heart moving and opening from the inside. So the other direction is from kindness for the outside, from the outside first. Right? Love directed outwards. And this is from uh, St. Francis of Assisi, part of a very famous, very, very famous uh, poem, which is often sung as a, is given as a hymn or a song. O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, right? To be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in the giving that we receive. It is in the giving, right? It is in the generative kindness of the heart through intention, through opening, and through action that we receive. So if we remember back from the Shamatha Vipassana, it was like you use generosity to help there to be harmony and then that supports concentration and wisdom well here it's just direct it's like as we give we receive it's like a kind of a you know they say what comes around goes around but when we when we work in the heart and we start to learn the ways of the heart in the giving in that opening that devotion this way we receive just by that act in the act itself this is Emerson again. It is one of the beautiful compensations in this life that no one can sincerely try to help another without helping himself. It is one of the beautiful compensations in this life that no one can sincerely try to help another without helping oneself. And we don't believe, it's very hard to believe this with our brains. But this is, 
So all of these things are questions, they're like to be lived. They're to be questioned. So see, when you really help another, when your heart really, something really comes from an openness, test this. Because to me, when I read this, uh, when I first heard this, it was just a week ago or so, it resonated very deeply. And it just brought up a lot of reflections of when I have been generous and how there's been immediate fulfillment. Sometimes it comes later or whatever, but there's often... And it's not doing this for that. It's not the kind of, I'll give you this gift so that later on you'll give me that or I'll speak this way that's nice. It's a whole different dimension, right? It's not world politicking. It's not getting ahead in life. It has to come from a very different quality of heart and mind for this, for this dynamic to have the possibility of actually functioning. How many people can relate to this? I just want to get a sense. Okay, good, good, because, great. Good. Because it does seem that's almost everybody, right? So it just seems natural. Okay. So this points to the mystery and the power of, of our interconnectedness, doesn't it? We forget this in our separateness, right? In all these forces of wanting and not wanting. We forget our interconnectedness. We forget this ebb and flow. We forget these cycles. The Dalai Lama has said that love and compassion are not love and compassion are not luxuries. They are necessities. Without them, we cannot survive. So it even goes deeper. If we do not embrace these inner, outer, and their interplay, the web of life that we inhabit, it actually cannot. So, that's, so this is just one's, someone's opinion. But we actually cannot survive without these because these are, if you think about it, these are the supportive threads of life, right? They are. So the final piece of this is working with kindness from awareness practice itself, okay? And in our shamatha, in our practice of calming and steadying the minds and then seeing into experience, well, very practically, if we, can st if we can be with the breath, for example, we can learn to be steady with the breath and then, let's say, some fear arises or sadness or something strong arises. We can learn to be with it in a different way from ourself. And also, if, something, if we're grounded in ourself and some, something comes from the outside at us, often we're not, we're, we're not as reactive immediately, because we're grounded in being present. Awareness holds a space. And, and there can be tremendous natural kindness in that. Thich Nhat Hanh says, the Buddhist attitude is to take care of anger. We don't suppress it. This is very important for our practice. It's arising from the inside. We don't suppress it. We don't turn from it. We don't, we just breathe and hold our anger in our arms with utmost tenderness. That anger is no longer alone. It is with mindfulness. The anger is no longer alone. And that's what our inner emotions, right? All our sp inner split off energies, they make us feel alone and separate. And mindfulness itself, and this is, he's saying breathing with, so we're using Right? We're using our skill of being present, opening. It's, a, it's insight. We're opening into what's there, but we're breathing with, or we're feeling in the body with, 
We, however, we can stay in the senses and open to that. And it's not alone. There's tenderness, there's innate kindness in that relationship then. We don't have to think about it, it's there. Have people experienced that? There's more space, give ourselves more space to be with ourselves. Yeah, that's a little harder one, right? <laughs> but that's really at the core, that's, the, that's where our transformative, transformative energies happen in that place. In a lot of other ways too, but that's a very powerful place for practice to be brought into. And then finally, when, let's, not, let's even throw out the breath. And the quality of awareness itself, when it's very, very strong, when it's very mature in a way, then very present. All three qualities of being present, being who we're with, and being kind, they all come together quite, quite naturally. From Gendon Rinpoche, he says, awakened awareness spontaneously manifests all the qualities of compassion. It does not need to be brought about. Awakened awareness spontaneously manifests the qualities of compassion, right? So that's when you're really present, compassion. So that's being kind to whatever beings are there, inside, outside, whoever you're with, right? Outside, inside, both together, back and forth. That it manifests these qualities naturally when our awareness is deeply awakened. So that all these questions dissolve, don't they? <laughs> right? It does not need to be brought about. And to me, that's very beautiful because there's something so simple at a very deep level in our practice of being present. We don't have to bring it about. And yet, we do. We need to work. And then when we don't, we don't. So I hope that these reflections show a spectrum of how to work with these questions in terms of our formal practice and give us hints in terms of bringing them into our daily lives. And then the last little, little piece, hope you can bear with me for a few more minutes, is um, just a couple of lessons uh, that I, we can get from, the, <coughs> from uh, learning to care. This is really talking about caring for the moment, isn't it? That's really what it is. It's caring for the moment and whatever makes it up. Right? Simple. So uh, one lesson I learned, we can learn from this, from the king, and, for our, and then apply it to ourselves, is that in this story, the king learned to take a bad situation and turn it into a good one, which is a big challenge in our lives, right? Like I talked about a bad hair day. It's not a bad hair day. But how do we turn a bad situation into a good one? So look at the king. First of all, it was not a good situation for him to come and to have the, have him, he didn't get his answer he didn't get his questions answered, did he? And he ended up digging all day in a garden, in hot soil. And he's a king. Was that a good situation from his expectation? No. How could it be, right? Uh, but what he turned it, didn't he? He turned that into the seeds through his inner qualities. He had, what, what qualities did he have? He had patience, didn't he? Tremendous patience, which is a natural outcome of, of being present. And often in our own practice, I don't know about the king, but in our own practice, to practice patience, we have to see impatience. So that's our insight practice, right? To be present with that which is not patient, guess what? If you're present with it, then by definition, 
you're patient. You're not trying to be patient. It's a natural consequence of being fully present. So whether the king was naturally present, like naturally patient, or whether he had to work with his inner resistance, I have no idea. It's just a story, right? Um, and he had tremendous resolve, didn't he? He stuck to it. In this inner journey we have of self-discovery, of really looking for this deep inner character of heart and mind that's based on present moment responsiveness, not reactivity, that's really what this leads to. We get responsive, we don't get pushed around. Right? We have choice. Or awareness decides for us, because we see, and these qualities are, are being embraced. So, so the king, in that situation, he turned a bad situation into a good one through these inner qualities. And then he got good results. Do you think that he wanted, you know, he wanted a man to come who tried to kill him and bleed on him? It's not a good situation, right? But he turned it through being present, through being kind, through staying with the process. And there was healing in a relationship there. She didn't even know. He didn't know there was animosity. He didn't know about his enemy, but then he, he gained a friend. So he turned the bad situation into a good one. So how do we do that? Can we learn to, to really have a good attitude towards practice where we turn those situations in our life that are tough into, often when there's a lot of energy that's evoked, we get, it cuts through our mechanical reactive energy. Like it, it cuts through our habit energies. And there's something that's very strong and we can work with it. So then that's an advantage. Sometimes when we're really, we have a great loss or I don't know, we get really hurt or something happens. Often that breaks through, it like cracks through our habitual, like just normalized energies. And so can we take advantage of that and really turn it towards awareness and value that? Um, one person on this retreat I just leading in Philly, we were talking about daily life practice and he said he always does red light meditation. And I was like, what's that? I didn't know. I mean, maybe I've heard of it. I should. I've been in this business long enough. But because uh, I, I don't do it very often. You get to a red light. I'm like, I want to go somewhere. Turn. Right? I want to will it. My power is to will that light. But it doesn't work. Okay? So he just said, I just breathe every time. Like, and I actually, he actually relaxes. Right? So there's a red light, and he relaxes and breathes. That's turning what I would call an inconvenient situation <laughs> into a moment of getting nourished by being present. I asked him what he did with the yellow lights and he didn't answer. <laughs> and the last one is, um, is that we learn, the king learned for himself. This, and this is actually the key, of, this is really, to me, one of the keys of the story. So I didn't tell you all the philosophies that were given in the beginning of the story. Why? Because none of them held true for him. He could have, rece he could have heard, oh, Oh, it's just, it's, you know, it, it, to be present is the most important thing, right? To be, you know, to be with who you're with, that's the most important thing. To be kind, that's the most important thing. Okay, that's a nice philosophy, next. But he learned through his own experience. And that's, it was tested in the fire, and that's why the hermit was wise. Because <laughs> he, he, he tested him, and he, he got tested in the fire of life. And then the teachings became hopefully became his own. So that's what we have to do. We don't have, our life has to be our wise hermit, right? 
We have to have that willingness to really learn. Oh, what, what did I learn here? Okay. Right? It's like this willingness to really live these questions. And actually, it's core in the Buddhist teachings. In the Kalama Sutta, he said, like, do not take what I say like as a dogma. Do not take it as something that, because it's coming from someone famous or it's traditional or old, don't take it on word and just like believe it like in this rote way. Test it. And if you find that it's valuable, really make it your own. If you don't, fine. So I invite us all, um, if you find there's some, anything compelling in these questions, to actually live them a little bit, to work with them. Like, and I've been doing it since I've been, you know, I've been living these for a while, just as a practice. Like, what is the most important time? Who is the most important person or being right now, this moment? And what is the most important thing? Okay, so thank you. Okay, great, you can uh, go. Thank you for bearing with me. It's a little, a little, it's a little over an hour, thank you. Thank you for practicing patience or watching your impatience. Or maybe you were just absorbed and delighted. I don't know. <laughs> uh, so you can go. And if anybody wants to stay, we've got about uh, 15 minutes for uh, discussion. For question. Anyone have any questions? Please. Yes. Please. Right there. And yes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.